0: learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, it's that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in health care-related fields to keep you a beat ahead.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud pulse. After many years in medicine, I'm amazed at all the new advances that we clinicians have seen and that we're in a constant state of learning. I think back to medical school and the rigorous science courses and long hours I put in to learn the skill to give great care to patients. It's really sickening now that medicine is burdened with an increase in violence and it's Five times more than employees in all other industries. And this is not just at the hands of mentally ill people. Patients are frustrated by difficulty in getting attention, there's staffing shortages, and lots of societal issues. According to a JAMA study, almost 24% of doctors have endured what they call occupational stress by verbal insults and harassment by patients and visitors. According to a survey of medical students in 91 countries, 21% are considering quitting. A whopping 60% are worried about their mental health. Some contributing factors include their study life balance, financial pressures, academic pressure, knowledge and misinformation, the worry of future shortages and burnout. In spite of the negatives, 89% of the students are devoted to improving patients' lives. Organizations are trying to improve the well-being and health of healthcare professionals, starting with the medical students. The majority of medical schools have joined many universities and started pass-fail grading systems. Removing grades is supposed to allow students to focus on studies rather than the grades. And this is what I find interesting. The United States Medical Licensing Exam, it's called the USMLE, the basic science part has shifted from a score to pass-fail. Now, the AMA views this grading change as a chance to improve student well-being, but 85% of the residency programs use that test as a big factor in deciding which applicants to interview. So now the program directors are looking for other attributes to judge the applicants, and they want to see more of the whole student. So they're relying on letters of recommendation and personal statements. I mean... Frankly, I think those are all well and good, but they can be very biased or there's some people that everybody know to go to says, oh, well, they always write something good about you. But I do believe a well-rounded person is good for communication with patients and the ability to see the patient as a whole person. But I wonder, will future doctors be taught more social justice than science? After all, They can look at chat GPT to get the diagnosis. My guest and I will discuss the changing face of medicine in education and how it is practiced in light of the social justice movement and artificial intelligence. Dr. Elena George, a friend of the show, is a board certified ear, nose and throat physician. She graduated from Princeton University with a degree in biology and received her master's degree in medical microbiology from Long Island University. She earned her medical degree from Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. She completed her residency at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital. She's the author of Big Medicine, The Cost of Corporate Control, and How Doctors and Patients Working Together Can Rebuild a Better System. I'm just always so happy to talk with Dr. George, and I have to admit, full disclosure, I've been on her radio show, which she calls Living in the Solution. Welcome to the show, Dr. George. Thank you, Dr.
2: Singleton. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
1: Well, I just want to get started. <laughs> Medicine has changed so much from the so-called good old days, where doctors, you know, came out to your house when you were sick, and every the doctor knew everybody in your family, and uh, if you couldn't pay, the doctor could waive the payment. That seems like a pipe dream from a gazillion years ago, even though it wasn't that long ago. So we've had that big change. What have you seen just in your lifetime in medicine?
2: That's a great question. I think there's been a uh, a concentrated movement away from individual healthcare and from the doctor-patient relationship, which used to be the focal point. And in my opinion, it's still sacrosanct to an algorithm corporatized version that's about volume. It's about get them in, get them out, see as many people as you can see and prescribe something. And I think the end point what we're seeing now is this tele, um, telemedicine where there is no laying hands on the patient. There's no energy passed between the two and it's very fast. And it always ends usual, I shouldn't say always, but most of the time it's gonna end up with the prescription, but not a real physical diagnosis. I get to see the people sometimes who've had the telemedicine visits and the diagnosis was incorrect and they're, they're worse. And I ended up seeing them. So I'm not a big fan to tell you the truth of the state of healthcare, as I'm sure you are not either. <laughs> and we need to have a coming together moment to be honest about this system, it's costing people more. They're getting less care. They're getting more expensive care. That's maybe not even what the problem is, just to get them out of the office. And I think it's 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 causing havoc in society and definitely in doctor's offices.
1: Well, it's interesting because one of the things you mentioned there, they're getting less care and more expensive care, yet there's all this... Uh, nonsense we hear all the time about, well, the Affordable Care Act is giving everybody insurance and it's going to save you money. Well, that certainly hasn't turned out to be true. What have you seen?
2: I can put this into just a little a, a capsulized version. Having health insurance does not equal access to healthcare. And I would put in the caveat quality healthcare. You're just spending more for the privilege of carrying of plastic, because I'm getting to see the other side where people can't go for a CT or won't get the, in, the procedure approved, even though it meets the guidelines of my medical association, my specialty association, the insurance companies are practicing medicine. They get to decide what procedure, what medication. And then on the flip side, they get to have, I think, a benefit, whether you go to an in-network uh, pharmacy, or you use things are in their silo. So I think you should always follow the money. That's been my mantra, and I think it's absolutely true. Who stands to gain from this system? And the two people that don't are the doctor and the patient.
1: Well, who does stand to gain?
2: <laughs> the insurance company, the farm, big pharma, the hospital corporatized system. There seem to be the big players taking a lion's share of the money and... I don't know what they're doing with it. They're just getting bigger and more, uh, there's more palaces being built, but it's not really helping the patient. They still don't really, they still don't have access. And those that do get in are self, um, you know, regulating themselves because of the money aspect of it.
1: Well, it's very interesting that patients aren't very well schooled about how they can save money. There's a fellow Marshall Allen who wrote a book which isn't advocating not paying your bills, but it's kind of like how not to pay your bills. And he's saying how not to overpay for the bills and checking bills you get from the hospital and seeing things that you were charged for that never even occurred. I once had a patient who was in a coma for several weeks. And I used to go visit her and I met her parents and her father said, well, he entertained himself all day by going through her bill. And he said he found mistakes that he could see, one of which was she was being charged for three meal trays a day and she was in a coma. (laughs) (laughs) So, And, you know, most people don't have somebody who's an advocate and can go through bills like that. And then when they challenge the hospital on it, sometimes they don't get a very good answer or they get the standard answer, oh, well, insurance is paying for it. That's not a good enough answer, honestly.
2: (laughs) And, you know, you have to become a consumer. That's what you have to do as a patient and shop around. You have Surgery Center of Oklahoma, for example, where you can go on their website. If you're getting a procedure, you can. They list their prices, by the way, so you can go there, get the price of uh, getting your gallbladder removed or a tonsillectomy or whatever it is. Take that price back to the hospital in your state, and say, "This is. I know this is the rate. What kind of deal can you thrive in this opaque environment, where if you don't have the price you know, the list of prices, you can't be a consumer. And that was supposed to be, I think, past ages ago, wasn't it? Where hospitals are supposed to list their prices. I don't think it ever happened, but it's in their interest not to list it. Because if you knew they were charging facility fees and all sorts of add-ons that have nothing to do with your actual care, I think people would start picking other things. They would go to independent doctors. They would go to freestanding surgery centers that are not a part of the hospital system. And they'd be pleasantly surprised at the frac. It's a fraction of the cost. Now I'm a ENT, so if I take somebody for a tonsillectomy in the hospital setting, that can cost them up nine thousand dollars. My fee is I'm getting five hundred bucks for the tonsillectomy. The rest is the hospital. That's outrageous. If I take them to a surgery center, it may be three thousand. This is a huge difference when you're talking about deductibles or having to pay out of pocket for the same doctor, the same uh instruments the same procedure but depending on where you go to do it you could be paying three four ten times more depending on what it is and i think patients if they knew that they would be a lot more aggressive about being active you know active participants in their health care and that to me would be the recipe to break this system nobody wants to lose business like that sorry
1: no that's sorry um When you talked about this transparency rule, well, it has passed and hospitals have published these things. The thing that's interesting, there's something called charge master rates that it's kind of like only the Swami knows what they really mean. And these rates aren't necessarily the rate that a person would be charged who has x insurance or y insurance because the hospital has contracts with different insurance companies and they pay different rates for different insurance but that's not out there on the transparency thing so it still has not helped people and this is something that the people have to know and you point this out the patients have to be proactive because only they know what their insurance program is or whatever. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they don't know until after the fact, but they've got to be the one to research it. The doctor can't research it for them. And uh, this is a real problem because a lot of patients don't know how to research it.
2: No, and they get stuck with the bill. And again, it comes down to time most of the time and where you are. So if you're going to a physician who's part of a health system and they're part of their their charge master is what the health system is, they don't even know what the allowed amount is and what the charge is. They are they don't. They're kept in the dark as well. So you really are on your own to you know more than not. But in, in a private setting, when it's an independent doctor, and I can use my office as an example, we have to look up and we will look up what your insurance Um, you know, what's allowed, what if the procedure is covered, and how much it's going to be. So we can tell people if I have to do a telescopic exam, I'm going to tell you what your allowed amount is and what you're responsible for, and then give you the option of do you want me to do it or not. That's a whole different ballgame than doing something and then sticking someone at the bill when they're when they're checking out, you know, having hundreds of dollars that they didn't know was coming. I think that is not conducive to a doctor patient relationship. And in this economic age that we're in it's it could really break someone's bank so again there's it's a two-tier system it's a parallel system you're in the the typical healthcare system under your insurance plans or you're outside of it in an independent f- freestanding or cash pay system and it's just a whole different mindset the costs are less price transparency is not a thing you know it's not Pie in the sky. It's there. You know exactly what it costs there. I have a set amount. It's a flat rate for people coming for a consultation. No surprise bills. These are the things that people, if they knew they existed, I honestly think, you know, Dr. Singleton, that they would jump for it and maybe think about having their insurance be for what it used to be for, which is catastrophic instead of covering every single thing. Because it costs you more money, especially if you're healthy, you never go. You're spending thousands of dollars a year. You could be putting that away in a health savings account for yourself to use as you see fit.
1: Wow. And this is something we all need to think about. When we get back from the break, I'd like you to say a question that comes up a lot when we discuss independent practice and cash pay is... What do financially strapped people do? And we'll talk about that a bit and many, many more things about medicine after the break. Right now, I'd just like to thank everyone for listening and to listen to my spiel about Co-fix RX. It is cold and flu season, so now more than ever, we need this. Cofix Rx is a nasal spray, and it's got povidone, iodine, and xylitol, both of which are powerful antiviral powerhouses. And you've got to look at using a nasal spray like this, kind of like an airbag in a car. It reduces the impact of the viral load. About 95% of these viruses that make us sick come in through the nose, and Cofix-Rx helps zap it before it has a chance to get all the way down into the lungs. Lots of doctors and pharmacists recommend it. And one of the things I love about it, it was invented in the USA around the time of COVID, that's ergo its name, and it's manufactured in the USA. You can get it at health food stores, medical offices, pharmacies. We have a little button on our page for CoFixRx. You click it on, read more about it, see if it's right for you. I use it, cold or flu season aside, all year round when I'm going someplace where I'm with a bunch of people, I don't know, just give myself a couple of squirts just as a protective um, device. So read about it, see if it's right for you.
3: How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? CoFix has some great news. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout.
2: Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well being. Global Healing's foreign protein cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, foreign protein cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally.
1: Before the break, I was talking with Dr. Elena George about independent medical practice and cash practices. And one of the questions I had is, what will people do if they're financially strapped? And how would they get in a system like that?
2: Well, actually, it's quite easy. There are a lot of websites. Um, You've got aapsonline.org, which gives a list of the independent of physicians throughout the country um i think there are other websites i'm drawing a blank on the one for um twyla uh it's join the wedge thank you thank you join the wedge um you can certainly give my office a call i'd be happy to help you in any way i can if you live in georgia um, but this is now you look up functional medical medical practices this is no longer uh, a little bit of you Know little options, it's a lot of options out there, and the key is to stay on the independent side whether it's an independent radiology system or lab core, or I should say anytime, anylabtimenow.com. These are labs that are a flat rate for, for blood draws for your typical labs, which are a fraction of what it costs when you have to go to lab and other big hospital systems. The radiology centers; it's a flat rate for CT scans and MRIs, which, like a fraction, literally, of what it would cost for doing the same procedure in the hospital system. So, there's everything is is recreated in a parallel manner. You just have to understand that the cost that you're getting through your insurance plan is not the true cost. Even the even from the pharmacy, if you go to GoodRx and you put in your prescription, you'll see things that are like pennies on the dollar compared to what your insurance might pay. You know, you'd pay out of pocket for your insurance. It's just, the system is not, it's not, I don't know, it's rigged. <laughs> it's like lot a better way to put it. There's so many costs that are sewed in to this corporatized insurance market, and they don't think there's any game in town that's going to disrupt this system. But I think if patients started to, Look outside the box if you don't have a lot of money. For example, in Atlanta, there's an urgent care. It's $160 flat rate to see a doctor, have labs, have x-rays, and get treated by ER board-certified doctors. I don't think any ER in a hospital system can beat that. You're talking thousands. And now what they're doing is sending you out for follow-ups. They're not doing anything but sending you for consults outside. So the bottom line is I think the basic thing that people I want people to take away from is that paying cash is the ticket to cheaper, higher quality healthcare, no matter what it is. If it's surgery, if it's mental health, if it's getting blood drawn, the whole system has been recreated outside of this model from from those like myself who feel that the doctor patient relationship is everything. And I don't want a middleman as much as I can get rid of that person. I want, and my patient and I want to be the arbiters of what care is. And I want them to know what the cost is up front and give them, you know, this is a business. So I want to be, you know, consumer driven, right? I want to be everything for my consumer, which is my patient, so that they're, they feel like their money is well spent. And they're going to get everything for their money that they deserve.
1: Well, what do you do about huge costs when you have to go to the hospital, you know, and have ICU care, you know, very major medical expenses?
2: I'm totally with you on that. I mean, you can use things like uh, Aflac, which has policies that cover major catastrophic illnesses like cancer, if you have to be in the ICU, if you have a stroke, if you have end of life issues. You can get and get paid for that. So you're paying maybe $50 a month. And if something happens, no questions asked. The policy generates and you'll have that that illness completely covered. So again, you don't have to use the insurance market. You can actually get indemnity policies for health. That's that's one idea. And it's not crazy expensive. So that's one method. God forbid you end up in the hospital and you're, you don't have a choice, then after your visit, after your illness is over, I would go to the financial office and I would get an itemized copy of that bill. And like you described at the beginning of the show, go through every item and make sure that you're not being double-billed or charged for things that you didn't do, period. So that's another way, honestly, of making sure you're not paying more than you have to. And if you have to, let's say you don't have insurance and you're a cash-paying patient, Every single hospital will make a deal with you. So if you say this is what I have and this is what I can come up with, let's make a deal. They want, they will make a deal. I mean, there's patients who've gone for surgery here in Atlanta, who the cash pay rate for a surgery, for example, is seventy percent off what the insurance, um, what they usually get for insurance, because they know they're going to get the money as opposed to fighting for months on end sometimes and never get it from the insurance company. So you have a lot more power as a self-pay patient than you can imagine. You just have to exercise it.
1: Well, that is good advice because I don't think people do realize that they don't have to be the little guy, David, fighting Goliath. And remember, David won. Exactly.
2: I thought to Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Just one last point. The hospitals have to give free care, a certain percentage of hospitals have to give gratis care so if you know that he's like why can't i be that one so that's part of how they get covered you know for you know medicare and those sorts of things they have to give free care a certain percentage and i don't think they do do it because people don't know that
1: well i and i think that's true and a lot of hospitals are now being criticized because the reason they can get tax exempt status um uh, is that they have to give X amount of uh, free care and that they aren't living up to that bargain. So open your mouths, be mouthy, be loud. Okay, well, I'd like to shift gears because I remember getting grades in medical school and I suppose I was learning this stuff because I knew I'd be tested on it, but I was also learning it because I wanted to learn it and needed to know to become a good doctor. So what do you think now that medical schools and now uh, part of the licensing exam are pass-fail? Do you think that will do anything to the caliber of the students?
2: I don't think it's a good thing, honestly. Um, I think they're tying everything to grades as if it's causing anxiety and the mental state that the students find themselves in. It's not because of the grades they have. These are the most competitive people who end up in medical school. So that's not something that's new for them. Right. I think it's the how the education system is geared and what they're learning. We had a supportive environment. We were learning. We were expected to learn. I mean, I want to have expectations and I want to meet them and, and, and exceed them. I'm not afraid of that. I don't know what's going on now, but I think it starts off from when they're much smaller with participation trophies and everybody's a winner and everybody did something to somebody. That is not the mentality that is conducive to being having enough tools to go out there on faith and to do, I mean, medicine is about being fearless in a lot of ways. I mean, you're You have someone's life in your hand. You have the ability to help them, or hinder them it's a huge responsibility you can't be of a mindset that you're afraid of that and therefore it creates anxiety and i just i can just see the snowball of being afraid and then having that internalized towards depression anxiety and then you're under working 100 mom not 100 hours anymore we worked 100 hours a week (laughs) but it's you know you're sleep deprived it just feeds on itself but i don't think this is a very superficial response to that problem. I think we need to go back to education, I think, prior to becoming a medical student, honestly.
1: Well, I yeah. I agree with you about the participation trophy. I think it's all well and good, but there still needs to be a first, second, third place, um, <laughs> you know, where it that that kind of competition makes you want to excel. And those are the kind of people certainly that apply to medical school and hopefully are accepted. Um, and I agree. I think grades sometimes can be a motivator and they certainly help make it easier for you to go to the next step. I just find relying on uh, letters of recommendation is I don't know. I mean, I was called on to write them when I was teaching. And I was generally honest with the person and just say, I don't think I can write you the kind of letter you want. But there was one guy who'd write a letter for anybody. And, you know, there's sort of that generic, he wears clean clothes and takes a bath every day kind of letter. And um, what good does that do? So it's, it's interesting. And in the end, you want to be a good doctor. You do. But you
2: also want to be able to think on your feet, critically think when things are not what the textbook says it should be. You should be able to work it out and not lose your cool. And basically you have to have some sort of gumption, right? I, the first time I went out and did a surgery on my own after leaving residency, I took some chutzpah, you know, you're there by yourself, there's no attending on your, you know, on your right side, talking, looking over what you're doing, you have to have that sense of I got this. I'm not sure that that's what this is going to uh, produce, right? Pass fail is not my answer, for me wanting to see a physician when I have a problem. And I don't think Chat GPT is an answer either, to tell you the truth.
1: Well, and we'll have to talk about that and what AI is doing to medicine. I, When you talk about having gumption and um, having a certain level of fearlessness, and that does not mean foolishness, no. but you have to be able to pick up the knife and do it. I remember the first time I cracked a chest in the ER when I was on trauma surgery, my hand was shaking. It was like, oh my goodness, they told us how to do this, but the patient is bleeding to death and they will die unless I do this, all of which is going through your head in a nanosecond and pick up the knife and do it and put your hand in there and start squeezing their heart. And those are the kind of decisions that you have to make right away. And it's kind of like when people train in martial arts, And they just talk about being prepared. They don't expect you to go down the street beating people up, that you're so mentally prepared that when it happens and you have to use that skill, that you can just do it and you don't have to think about it. And that in your mind, you're chitting through all the pros and cons and it's all happening like in front of your eyes very quickly. And then you do it. And usually you're right, sometimes you're not, but that's the vagaries of having human beings with different bodies and uh, they all react differently.
2: They do, but that, that ability to make that decision and not dither about it is what the training is supposed to do. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I've been in positions, uh, carotid blowout, which is very unusual a head and neck cancer patient where the radiation, the the skin over the radiation site ruptured and the carotid was it blew, right? So it was bleeding. And I had, was the only person in there. And I had to get it done, packed it, guys fine. Saw him in clinic like a few months later. And that was something that I read about, but I've never done. But it just my training and the fact that I went through a lot of stuff prepared me for that. It wasn't coddling it wasn't it wasn't was not easy but you get through it i mean this is i want somebody who can say that i don't want someone who cannot say that that would change the whole it has the ability i think to change healthcare as we know it if this is the standard of the medical education system now pass fail <laughs> just get it just get a p equals md <laughs> you know, it's, not,
1: it's not good <laughs> Well, it reminds me of, uh, you know, I don't want people to think we're like people in this commercial where the guy says, I walk 10 miles to school in the <laughs> snow, uphill, both ways. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's and and just because. Uh, conditions were not ideal or you worked a million hours and all that, just because you did it doesn't mean everybody else has to do it. And I think there have been some good reforms in residency of cutting back on the hours. Residents used to say there's no good learning experience after 12 midnight. But of course, in reality, you know, that's when the best learning experiences are. Exactly. You know, that's where you really do earn your bones. But um, we're going to talk a little bit more about medical education. And one of the things we're seeing now is, A lot of social justice is being taught in medical school, climate change and things. Yet there's so much science that's out there um, that didn't exist when I was in medical school. And I wonder, how do they find the time to teach it if they're teaching social work as well as science? So we'll talk about that after the break. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We've got our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa, and you can hear Pulse every weekday at five with an encore at 11 and an iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. All of our shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. One of my favorite things about the show is that it's a different doctor every day. Mondays, there's me, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we have Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays, Dr. Peter McCulloch. Thursday, Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And if that's not enough, we've got nurses out loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 p.m. So we've got a lot of medicine, a lot of politics, sometimes more medicine, sometimes more politics, but always interesting.
0: With the rise of independent media, we are now America Outloud.news. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Today's high-stress, on-the-go lifestyle makes it hard to stay heart-healthy. Lifestyle changes like exercise and diet are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support three aspects of heart health, cholesterol, blood pressure, and triglycerides, with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill, It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients. You would need to take 13 pills to get the same amount of nutrients in each gel pack. And these great-tasting gels come in a small packet. Tear off the top, shoot it down, or mix it in water. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off.
1: Before the break, I was talking with Dr. George about medical education and how now there's a lot of social justice talk and and courses on climate change. And uh, what do you think of this? I mean, in light of all the scientific advances and biochemistry and all these other things, what's with this?
2: That's a great question. I I really, I don't know how people have enough time for the basic medical education and adding all of these things in, you know, to me, it it potentially is the position or the possibility of more divide and conquer and parsing things that really shouldn't be as part of the medical education system. There's enough knowledge that you have to gather and become adept at and hone that Take, should take up all of your time. If you want this, and this should be outside of the system, in my opinion, because it's not about taking care of a patient. It's about looking at the patient in a way that you shouldn't. It's a human. It doesn't matter if they're black, white, what socioeconomic strata they come from. It doesn't matter. You should be treating them as your family member, in my opinion, when you're across from them or you're examining them. And you wouldn't need to have these different ways of, talking to people, if you t- treated everybody with respect, period, it wouldn't matter. I treated the homeless as I treated somebody from Park Avenue when I was in residency. It's the same. And therefore, this is irrelevant, in my opinion.
1: Well, it's interesting mm-hmm. you say that because this whole idea of... uh Teaching social justice and saying, well, we have social determinants of health, and you've got to quiz people about that. It comes back to what you're you were talking about way in the beginning. If you practice medicine where you have a solid doctor-patient relationship, you know that stuff. You've sat down and talked to the patient. Do you think that if you actually sat down with the patient and chatted with them about their life after they told you um, why they came in in the first place. And then you said, well, let's backtrack. Um, Do you have help at home? Do you do all your own housework? All the things that we were taught way back when, when the history was the most important thing. It doesn't have to be like this social justice focus.
2: No, it doesn't. And it, you know that's what makes medicine so awesome. I trained in New York, so we got to see everything, whether from out of the country or Holocaust survivor. It was fascinating just to take the history from folks because you got to learn about their life. It didn't matter what they looked like. They were someone that needed my help. And it was amazing to, to actually form a relationship with them. They didn't care what color I was either. It was I was there and I was their advocate. We need to go back to that. If we could just, as a society, honestly, do this, we would not be in this position right now where everybody's hating on everybody else and one little slip-up or a misconstrued conversation cancel somebody. How can we be authentic with each other if we're afraid to open our mouths and speak truth?
1: Well, you are so right now. Of course, you as an ENT person, I have to tell you this, since you use the phrase, afraid to open our mouths, (laughs) and to the listeners, sometimes we have to laugh to keep from crying. So why do they do tonsillectomies in Russia transrectally? I don't know. (laughs) Because people are afraid to open their mouths. (laughs) That's pretty
2: funny. (laughs)
1: Okay, the little E&T humor, or non-humor is <laughs> the case, maybe. <laughs> I'd appreciate it, though, I did. <laughs> but we're getting to be like that, where we're afraid to open our mouths. And once we stop talking to people, we stop learning about people. And, and we're seeing that in the general culture. And I'm sure that has spilled over into medicine, And we don't want people to be afraid to speak.
2: No. I mean, that's how we get to understand each other instead of assuming because you look a certain way that you think a certain way and then you're automatically put off. But when you start to actually engage, you realize that we're all the same. You know, they were not that dissimilar. And respect comes from that. You may be different, but we get this. or we have this common point. This is pretty straightforward, honestly. I don't know how we ended up in this situation.
1: And it's so interesting, because once you talk to somebody, it's kind of like, you know, the old adage, well, everybody had a mother, that there's always something that binds us together. And sometimes they're the oddest things. Exactly. Uh, You know, you, uh, I'll never forget once, uh, and this when I was an intern, I was doing a dressing change on a patient, and she had the TV on, and, and she asked, oh, do you need me to turn it off? And it was all my children, the soap opera. And so... I said, oh no, you can leave it on. I'm just doing this. And then I turned up and I said, oh, what's Erica Kane doing now? And the patient just laughed. She said, oh, you watch soap operas too? <laughs> Since I was 17. And you know, then it got to be kind of a joke because I try to get in her room every day at the same time <laughs> so I can see the soap.
2: <laughs> and you had a, like a relationship with the patient. You like that, that common point just made, I'm sure it made her day to have you in there watching it while she was getting something done that nobody wants done, a dressing change, right? So this is, that's a, that's a tale that everybody should pick up, you know? I mean, just go out, don't even have to go out of your way. Just be kind, right? Just speak.
1: Well, and they also realize a doctor is human too. You have a, a fund of knowledge that they don't have. They didn't go to medical school. They didn't have a residency. So there's a lot of things you know they don't know, but we're still human beings. And at heart, everything should be human to human. I couldn't have said it better. And that's that's what now (laughs) leading into speaking of human, what do you think about AI and chat GPT and all this stuff that's computer and virtual and not hands-on?
2: I think from a medical standpoint, I, I'm, not, I'm not for AI in any, in any sense of the word, even from a social standpoint. Nothing is, nothing is unique as human to human interaction, nothing. The energy that's passed between two people or a group of people, the ability for nuance, the ability to engage in a way that's authentic, not just a question asked and a question answer given. It's not the same. There's an art to medicine. And I don't think that 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 disallows that. And it gives a shortcut for the, the, I guess it's going to pick up the slack for all the other things that people learning in medical school, you can just put in the symptoms, and then it'll pop out a diagnosis. But anybody, that's like being a technician. That's not being a physician. I don't subscribe to it. I will never use it.
1: Well, it's very interesting, because enough people, I guess, now are trying it, and the diagnosis doesn't always come out right anyway. So... It's it's kind of like a self-driving car that they're now realizing they get in accidents, that there still has to be a human behind it. I mean, I there's certain algorithms and whatnot that might be useful because maybe you'll see something you didn't think of, but I can't imagine relying on that bottom line without you doing a critical analysis of, of how they got there. I, I agree. But also you have to think about
2: the bigger picture. You're providing it information. It gets more powerful as the information, as it gathers more information. So at some point it probably will be, you know, comparable or better than a human. And then what happens to the human? You become Unnecessary. So basically you're just pushing yourself out of a job. It'll do the robotics will do surgery. The robots will take, you know, primary care and internal medicine. Humans won't be necessary anymore. So do you really think that that's a system that you want? Because when they decide that you have a disease that's not worth fighting for, you're going to be in a hospice situation without any remorse. It's because that's the facts. So that human kernel, that empathy, that ability to go on an individual basis, not on the big picture, on the macro level, but the micro level, is what makes medicine interesting and what makes it a health a care. I don't think this is the same thing, right?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you, you talk about throwing you on hospice. There's lawsuits now against uh, a couple of health systems over AI, because it turned out they were using some algorithm to kick people out of rehab. And everybody's different. And you can put in all those factors and whatnot that says, okay, you should be able to be out in three days. And you go in the patient's room and actually look at the patient, and they're immobile. So how are they going to send them home in three days?
2: Exactly. Well, everybody's not based on an algorithm, right? So you this is the problem I'm finding with medicine as it stands now. You're supposed to, like you described on our interview, if you're supposed to do 10 injections for something and that's what your what your body of, of knowledge and your specialty says and the insurance company comes back and says, just do three. Well, how do you argue with a robot, right? How do you, where's the human interaction to say there's an exception here? You're not going to get that that opportunity. It is going to be really rigid, I think.
1: Well, I guess part of they're glad it's rigid that way they can say well, we're not discriminating against anybody. Uh-huh. This is this is the rule, this is the way it is. We're not like refs in a football game that sometimes are wrong and sometimes are right and they'll assume they're always right. But no, the patient somehow seems to be the football that gets dropped and It's really bothersome to me because I wonder what the students, you know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in one of the classes where they talk about this and see to what degree students are told to rely on it.
2: It's going to be a lot easier to rely on it if your fund of knowledge from the medical side, the physiology, you know, the biochemical side of it isn't there. If you're depending on just give me the answer and this is the treatment, you don't have the nuance, you don't have the foundation, and therefore you can't draw any other conclusions because you don't have enough knowledge to do that. So I think we're going to get into a position, if this continues, where they don't know what good is. (laughs) They don't know what it could have been and what it used to be because they don't have a frame of reference. And then it's over. How do you teach that? You actually have to go through that and learn it step by step, there is no shortcut to that. Like you and I, we didn't just jump to the diagnosis, we had to have a differential. We had to prove why we were picking that differential. It had to be, you know, it was teased apart in such a way that there, you couldn't cheat. <laughs> you actually had to do the reading and do the work and figure it out, because they can make you look really bad. In Mount Sinai, if you're a, one of those uh, morning sessions and you didn't know and you couldn't cite your source and prove it, you weren't happy so that's what we're going to be missing right how do you learn that you either you have to learn it from the get-go this is a this is an, an active art because it changes right the information continues to expand you have to be a student if you were never a student to begin with how do you have that skill
1: well that sure is the truth and uh we can't let ourselves get complacent. As practicing physicians, we always take continuing education and try to learn some of these new things. And and we, I just hope the students are learning it in the first place and don't get so embroiled in trying to prove they're a social justice warrior rather than just sitting down, learning the science and realizing if you know the science as a background, you'll spend the time to also get to know the patient as an individual. And now they're trying to group patients into these silos, just like they're trying to group medical students into silos. Mm -hmm. And it really saddens me to see where we've gone.
2: Well, as long as I think there are doctors who've practiced, who know what it was like before, can somehow reach out to students who are, you know seeking a different a different way to see things a different way to to learn like the benjamin rush children, um medical students then we have a chance and i think the patients are the one of the most important parts they have to want more and they have to know that there is there is more than what they're getting and seek it Because they're the ultimate. If the patients stop going to these systems, stop giving them your money and your attention and your time, they either close or they have to change.
1: Well, that's a nice positive note to end on. And because whenever I hear you speak about this and that patients have to speak up, doctors have to speak up, for those of us old enough to remember the movie Network You all get together, and everybody say it, and you say it from the rooftops. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's how we all have to be, patients and doctors. Couldn't have said it better. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Dr. George. And as always, you have an open invitation to come back, and I hope you will soon.
2: Absolutely.
1: You just have to ask. Okay. And I would just like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. Now, you know, we've got our email feature and it's right on the, probably about the middle of the page with the uh, podcast. And you can send an email to the host or the guest via the host. First names are fine and ask a question and we'll get back to you with the answer now, we have got another great feature that started a couple months back on the website, and it's called americaoutloud.shop. Well, it speaks for itself. We've got lots of stuff on the website, books by our guests, and other books of interest, some of the products. You can get Kofix Rx there and some of the wellness company products, and We're so simple here. If you put in a code out loud, you can get a discount on any of your purchases. So check it out. We're always trying to have new things and things of interest for you. So like I always say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. Thanks again for listening. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free. And I'm proud.